Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Thank you, Mike. Today we're going to ca- tackle First and Second Thessalonians, which is a very interesting commentary on the role of prophets in our lives as well as the second coming. So this is where Paul talks about that the second coming wouldn't be in uh, in their day until there was an apostasy. So a lot of second coming today and a lot of interesting how to preach the gospel as well as an interesting insight into the role of prophets, seers, and revelators. So Mike, let's just jump right into First Thessalonians. Okay, so First Thessalonians is probably chronologically one of the first texts written in uh, the New Testament, uh, probably way before the Gospels. Uh, Paul was basically going to go on a mission, and he sees a guy that says, hey, you got to come here to Macedonia. That's all in Acts 16. So he heads to Philippi, and on the way, he stops in Thessalonica, and eventually he goes to Athens. But he sends his partner Timothy back to Thessalonica. It probably took him about three weeks to walk there. And so this is a letter based on Timothy's report of what's happening there. It's full of love and affection. A bunch of times he calls them brothers. And essentially, uh, this text is dealing with a concern that the people are having. And Bryce, we're going to talk a lot about this, uh, this idea of Jesus's coming. And there's all kinds of different words for it in scholarship. But I think in our faith tradition, we just talk about it as the second coming. And the belief essentially was uh, that he's coming. It's, it's imminent. Jesus is going to come. And some of the people in Thessalonica are concerned because they've lost loved ones. And the thought is, well, are they going to miss out? Is that a pretty fair assessment? Yeah, it, we're we're in we're in First uh, Thessalonians four, but I would not or verse thirteen. I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That that turns this whole book from what he's been talking about to second coming. So everything in Thessalonians turns on that. Oh, we're concerned about those of us who have passed away, our loved ones. Um, what's going to happen to them in the resurrection, in the second coming, and all that. So that now turns the subject into a second coming issue. So, yep, you got it. So we're going to be talking a little bit about this. Uh, just so just so the, reader, uh, the readers, just so the listeners are aware, uh, we're going to be talking about things that you won't necessarily teach, but I think it's good for us to be educated as to what the texts are saying and what scholarship is saying. And while I say that, Scholarship is not the end-all and be-all of everything. So some of the things that scholars say may or may not be, we just don't know. Um, Is that fair? Yeah, but we promise we'll always take it to our day and say, therefore what? We're going to take every one of these scripture blocks and say, okay, therefore what? How does this apply to you and I? So if you enjoy the scholarship, if you like the background information, great. If not, stay tuned and we will get to modern application to all of these scriptures. That's kind of why we're here is the therefore what? But the scholarship, Mike, I think is is vital. It's the more the better we understand these scripture texts, the better we can apply them to our lives. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to just say this, and I know Bryce, you're going to talk about this as well. That a prophet can be a prophet and still not have everything laid out before him. Uh, he can have beliefs that 
you know, for example, he can see and vision something happening, but not necessarily know the timeline. So here's the deal. In in First Thessalonians, essentially what Paul's thinking is, hey, Jesus is coming soon. And you can't blame him because Jesus said it. If you if you read the Gospels, there are many times where he says that many of you standing here will witness my coming. I'm coming soon. If you've read the book of Revelation, how many times does it say he's coming soon? If you've read the Doctrine and Covenants, many times the Lord says, I'm coming soon. And how do we interpret this? Well, it seems to be in First Thessalonians, Paul saying, hey, he's coming soon. Don't worry, you guys. Uh, many of you standing here are going to see when the, the Lord comes again. And Joseph does change some of that. For example, if you go to the 15th verse of, is it 4 or 5? It's 4. If you go to 4.15, so 1 Thessalonians 4.15, it says this. This is what the text says. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And the implication seems to be that, hey, Jesus is coming and we're going to be there. And the rest of the, the chapter, you know, the end of the chapter, verse 18, says, comfort one another with these words. And he's essentially saying, hey, we're going to be caught up. We're going to meet him, and it's going to happen. And in the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph writes this. He says, they who are alive at the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them who remain unto the coming of the Lord who are asleep. And so, in essence, what Joseph does is, with his prophetic pen, basically says, hey, Paul's dead, Paul didn't see the second coming, but there will be a day when the Lord does come. And and those that are alive, that are righteous, will be caught up to meet him. And we read this again in section 88, right around verse 95 to 98. And there, in these verses, or something like them, were paraphrased by Moroni to a 17-year-old Joseph, uh, as he's quoting Old Testament texts, which are talking about the second coming. So this stuff is repeated throughout our sacred texts, wouldn't you say, Bryce? Yeah, and you know, there's a... There's a wholesomeness to that, Mike, where Paul assumed that it would happen in our day. I think there's a healthiness to assuming that gospel events are going to happen to us. I think there's a healthiness to Latter-day Saints saying, Jesus is coming in my lifetime, therefore I'm going to prepare for it. Yeah. And so if Paul says, hey, he's coming today, I think in one sense that's a very appropriate approach to assume I'm, uh, I'm preparing now as if he is coming for in my day. So I don't, I don't think we should necessarily say, oh, this is evidence that Paul's not a prophet or Paul doesn't have um, inspiration. It's just he, he made the assumption that, hey, Jesus is coming soon, so let's get ready for it. And, and there is a healthiness to that. There is a healthiness to say, you know what? Looking at all the signs, one might say, well, no way Jesus is going to come in my lifetime because we have way too much to do. But there's a healthiness to assume he's going to ha- come in my life. I'm going to prepare for that as if he's coming tomorrow. Um, that's one of the reasons why the Lord doesn't give us the day. Yeah. Imagine a college professor who says, here's a paper and it's due and I'm not going to tell you when it's due. Wouldn't you want to go write it and be prepared at any moment and have it ready whenever he does call for it? And so that's kind of the idea. So I don't think we should throw shade on Paul for saying that as much as we just simply say, yeah, he took a healthy approach to say he's coming today. I think there's a healthiness to that. Yeah. So Bryce, I'm just going to talk a little bit about some application that may go with this that we can look at. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament uh, not today, but when we get there, we'll look at a lot of this. So I'm just going to give some sweeping generalizations. But if you, if our listeners have ever read the book of Genesis, they know that the Lord gives all these promises to Abraham. And if you've read the book of Genesis, you know that those promises weren't fulfilled in his lifetime. Abraham was promised land, huge land promises, and they weren't fulfilled. I mean, he had to 
purchased a piece of land to bury his wife. And so even though they weren't fulfilled in his lifetime, the idea is that the Lord fulfills his promises, that his words are sure. And this is kind of the message of Hebrews 11. All these people that trust in the Lord and trust in his promises, even though they're not always fulfilled. So I just want to testify this notion of how we read texts uh, or how we even look at patriarchal blessings. For example, a, a patriarch once blessed one of my sons, and before he gave the blessing, he talked about how uh, a blessing, for example, of having children may not always be fulfilled in this life. And so I think that's important that we see we have a perspective that is more eternal when it comes to these things. Because if you think about it, um, maybe Jesus' second coming, you know, it certainly wasn't in Paul's day, but then again, was it? In other words, is not the second coming when we meet him? And, and so this is one way we can read this. And another thing, Bryce, that you said I really liked was we need to be prepared as if he was. I mean, technically, can't we say that the second coming has already occurred when Joseph went into the sacred grove and saw the father and the son? Hasn't Jesus already? And so it's, it's really hard to say, here is this one and only interpretation of a scripture book. Good, good. Good. All right, Mike, if I could take, I, I love chapter, in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. So, our thinking is that Paul basically says the second coming is going to happen. Everything, you know, speaking of the resurrection of the dead, Jesus is going to come. Everything's going to be fine. And then further light and knowledge came to Paul, and he realized, oh, it's not going to happen until after the apostasy. And so he writes a second epistle, and that's where we get the famous verse in chapter two. Let no verse, you know, chapter two, verse three. Let no man deceive you by any means that that day shall not come, except there shall come a falling away first. And I love that in the Spanish version, it actually uses the word apostasy, that the second coming will not come in our day, folks, because there has to be an apostasy and then a restoration. So kind of here's a beautiful prophecy from Paul of our day about the latter days, that we are the ones that will restore the truth and bring the truth back to earth and build up the kingdom again in preparation for the Lord's second coming. So Paul's clearly pointing to our day. Um, but it also points out that it's going to come after a dark day, that we are the Church of Jesus Christ of latter-day saints, which means we come before the final end to clean up the mess. We're the ones that have been sent to earth following the apostasy, and we're the ones that are rebuilding the kingdom of God on earth. And that ought to set the latter-day saints up to say, Wow, that is a significant position to be in, that we are the ones that come after the falling away and have to build up this kingdom. Um, and then Paul just talks about in the previous verse in, in chapter 1, to you who are troubled, rest with us. Now, Mike, I'm sure you've had the same experience, but I usually begin every class that I teach with, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? 20 plus years, 25, 26 years I've been asking that question. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? And Mike, in all those years, I've never had one single young single adult or high school student raise their hand and say, tell us about the second coming. <laughs> and that puzzles me because you would think of all the subjects that the youth would want to talk about, that's something that they would certainly want to talk about, the second coming. But not one time in 26 years of full-time teaching has anyone ever raised their hand and said, talk to us about the second coming. And I have a theory about that. 
I think it's because we're afraid. I think we don't want to know. I think people say, well, my life is pretty good. I don't want to know how bad it's going to be. And most people are afraid of the second coming. And that's what Paul is trying to say is, of all the people on earth, the ones that should not be afraid of his coming are his people, his saints. The ones that I I love in, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all them that believe. So, Mike, let's just talk briefly about what messages from all of the scriptures, not just from Paul, but what messages could we give the Latter-day Saints to help them not have fear of the future, not be afraid of the second coming, but to say, you know, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. I like that. I got one. Go. Okay, so... It's great and dreadful. We know that. It's always called great and dreadful. I always like to focus on positive things, especially just like you said, we kind of get tripped up on some of the, you know, you read section 29 and you're like, flies and maggots. It's just kind of scary. So I love section 45. So section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants is one of many revelations that deals with this idea of building uh, Zion, building a city. And Bryce and I, I got to tell you, Bryce, I've been thinking about this for weeks now. How in the heck are we going to do Revelation? We could do how many, I mean, hours, seriously, I don't even know. I think, you know what we might want to do? We might want to do like one or two little podcasts of just, here's the general overview. And then Revelation in a day, Revelation in a week. And then how about Revelation in a month? You could, it could be a semester course. Yeah, it could. So, so in the book of Revelation, there's this idea of two cities. There's two women. There's two cities. There's two churches. There's there's two sources of information. There's the beast and there's the, the light that comes from the lamb. Well, the two cities, there's Babylon on the city of seven hills, but then there's Zion. There's even two suppers. There's the marriage supper of the Lord and the, the, and the, uh, the feast the, of the beast. Yeah, the feast of the beast. And we'll do all that. But in, in section 45, the Doctrine and Covenants at the end, the Lord is laying out his city and talking about it. And I just, we're just going to read a couple, but this is what he says in section 45, verse 64. He says, I, the Lord have said, gather out of the Eastern lands, assemble ye yourselves together, ye elders of my church and go into the Western countries. Verse 65 with one heart and one mind, gather up your riches that you may purchase an inheritance, which shall hereafter be appointed unto you. And it shall be called the new Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the most high God. And the glory of the Lord shall be there and the terror of the Lord shall be there insomuch that the wicked will not come unto it and it shall be called Zion. I love that. And, And verse 68, there shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. So if I'm in front of teenagers and we're talking second coming, I always read those verses. So some some scary things are coming, yes, but there's going to be a haven. There's going to be a safe place to go. It won't be all in chaos. I love that. Uh, And just another, just a macro principle, like you don't even have to open your scriptures. If you're talking to people that have read the scriptures or heard the stories because they're scripturally literate, we all know stories where this macro principle is taught on, on a big scale. So, for example, Noah and his family are preserved. And in the Prologate Price, we read that everyone who's righteous is taken up to heaven. So Noah was successful. Uh, Nephi is taken out of the city before the city is destroyed. Section 45 is given in the context of it's before the Civil War. Yeah. And the Lord takes his saints out of that. Uh, and so I always like to testify of the, the idea 
or the, the belief, the truth that the Lord will take care of his people and there's always bad things. And, and so it, it's tough. You know, it's not just that bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to people. But God will keep his kingdom. So that's, that's section 45 anyway. In the context of Second Thessalonians and the apostasy. And I like where you said, you know, if you're troubled, find rest. Find rest. That's, that's, uh, that's Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Those are important verses. Yeah. Let me throw another one with that idea in in section 29 that talks about flies and maggots eating our flesh and all of that too many people focus on those scary things and they miss the simple message of verse 8 and so i call upon everyone in the church who's nervous about the future to memorize doctrine covenants 29 verse 8 and listen to what it says wherefore the decree hath gone forth from the father that they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land to prepare their hearts, now listen carefully, ready? And be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. If you gather to Zion, if you learn to follow a prophet, you will be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation comes. There is nothing that's coming that we need to be afraid of if we are gathered to Zion and we are led by prophets, seers, and revelators. We will be prepared in all things. Which leads me to a, another thought. Nephi is allowed to see the end of the world. Remember, he starts in the Savior's day, sees the Nephites' history, and then he comes to our history, sees Columbus and the Revolutionary War, and then Nephi is allowed to see the end, but he's not allowed to write about it, which is a great plug for the book of Revelation because the Lord clearly wants us to have the book of Revelation's version, not Nephi's version. But Nephi was allowed to see the end and couldn't write about it. Didn't mean he couldn't comment about it. He just couldn't write about it. So in 1 Nephi chapter 22, you find Nephi making a bunch of commentary about the latter days without saying, I can't tell you what's going to happen, but I can tell you one thing. For example, verse 13, I think one thing surprised Nephi. See, we kind of have this idea that good will finally beat evil in the end. That in the end, good defeats evil. And that's not what Nephi saw. And one of the things that surprised him, 1 Nephi chapter 20, verse 13, isn't that good beats evil. It's that evil turns on evil and they destroy themselves. And then the other thing that Nephi seems to be saying is, look, I can't tell you how it ends. I can't tell you what I saw, but what I can say over and over and over. Look at 1 Nephi 22, 17, 19, 20, 22. Over and over and over again, he says, I can't tell you what happens. I'm not allowed to tell you what happens. But what I can say is, the righteous need not fear. Verse 17, he will preserve the righteous by his power. End of verse 17, the righteous need not fear. Uh, verse 19, righteous shall not perish. 20, the Lord will surely prepare a way for his people. Verse 22, righteous need not fear. This is a man who isn't prophesying. He has seen the end. He knows how it ends. And he's just simply saying, look, I can't tell you the details. But what I can say is, you don't need to be afraid. 
And that, I think, is the heart and soul of what Paul is trying to say to all of us, is those of you who are afraid of the future, don't be. Follow a prophet. Gather to Zion. Be righteous. And there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that's coming that we won't be afraid of. I like that. That we should be afraid of, Mike. I like that. You know, one thing I like to do with students is just take them through that text and have them highlight and count all the times the Lord says through Nephi, Hey, don't worry about it. I love the end of verse 25 where it says, in him they shall find pasture. And there, there's tons of protection verses in there. And and then also, if you look in verse 27, Nephi seems to be saying that this isn't like a metaphorical thing. This is a literal thing. So, you know, all these things must come according to the flesh. So I, I really like to teach this through Nephi. I want to talk a little bit about the text of 2 Thessalonians. And like I said, you're probably not going to teach this, but I think you need to be aware that 2 Thessalonians, at least in scholarship, is considered Deuteropauline. And what I mean by that is it's scholars basically say that probably Paul didn't write this. That Paul has, if you read the genuine Pauline epistles, 1 Thessalonians, if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians and Romans, especially in Corinthians, Paul's talking like, hey, he's coming, he's coming. And then 2 Thessalonians is almost like this letdown, like, well, what happened? He didn't come. And so the the text is a totally different approach. It's, hey, he's going to come, but we've got to have some apostasy first. We've got to have this, an apostasia. It's a mutiny. It's a revolt against the authorities. And I, I want to just bear this testimony of the idea that all through the New Testament, the apostasy is happening. In almost every letter we read, whether it's Paul or whether it's John, when we do 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and even you know in Matthew where Jesus says, you know what, they're going to kill you guys. It's not going to work out. The, the movement of Christianity is going to be hampered. And so that's who, you know, whether Paul wrote it or whoever wrote 2nd Thessalonians, that's the idea that, that it hasn't happened, but there's going to be a revolt. And even in 2nd Thessalonians, some of this stuff's there. The other, the other issue in 2 Thessalonians, besides the second coming, is that people are kind of being not nice. Uh, skip to uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, verse, well, verse 6 through basically the end. But he's talking about people that are causing problems. In verse 11, he calls them disorderly people. But really, I think he's calling them lazy. If you look in verse 10, it says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And so he seems to be confronting a bunch of people. I, I'm calling them lazy Christians. And he says, listen, if they're not going to eat, then, uh, or excuse me, if they're not going to work, then they shouldn't eat. And so some of that's happening. And, and maybe Christianity as it grew, maybe invited some of those people that thought, hey, I can just kind of walk all over these Christians and they're going to take care of me. And so, like I said, whether Paul wrote this or whoever wrote this, that those are the two main issues of Second Thessalonians is the second coming hasn't happened and we've got these people that are just kind of living off us. And look what he says in verse 8. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Essentially what Paul's saying in that verse is we worked hard for the ministry and we didn't expect you to take care of us. We were able to work for our own bread. Um, now, whether you teach that or not, or how, how, however much that matters, just know that it's in there. And while we're on that subject, Mike, let me do one more minor theme in the book of Thessalonians. Those of you who are going to teach it in your homes or in the church, 
If you'll go back to 1 Thessalonians, the first couple of chapters, before he ever brings up the subject of the second coming, the main subject here is preaching the gospel. And I love how he, chapter 1, verse 5, Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power, in Holy Ghost, in much assurance. So he's talking about how people receive the word. How do we spread the message? And I know there's a lot going on in social media. And we have a tendency, we debate religion. And there's a great lesson here in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 about how is the gospel best received. It's received out of love. And he starts talking about verse 4. We put our trust with the gospel, not as pleasing men, but God. Neither, verse 5, at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. Man, that's a great phrase for those who discuss religion today. We don't, we don't need to sell the gospel. We don't need to promote it. We don't need to make it more than it is. Verse 7, Paul presents it gently, like a nurse who cherishes her children. That's how we preach the gospel. Verse 9, laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto you, any of you. Meaning, we're not gonna, you don't owe us anything. This is our free will offering to you. Verse 10, ye are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and blamably we have behaved ourselves among you that believe. In other words, gospel is preached by our example, our kindness, and our love. I love um, where he says, Verse chapter 3, verse 10, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Paul loves these guys and he's trying to teach them. The gospel is not preached harshly. It's not debated. It's not proved. It's presented with love and kindness and the Holy Ghost confirms it. We ought to be really careful when we debate the gospel because it just, we learn from Ammon and Aaron in the Book of Mormon. Ammon went in there serving and loving and trying to win their hearts. One of my favorite lines in Alma chapter 17, verse 29, he says, he sought to win their hearts because when we win their hearts, then they'll believe our words. Now, Aaron went in preaching and they wouldn't listen to it. He went in, he pulls out his scriptures as if he's trying to Bible bash and prove, and they throw him in jail. Aaron went in serving, and it was Lamoni who brought up the gospel. It wasn't Ammon. Our love, our example is how we will preach the gospel. Let me just close that thought using Joseph Smith as an example. If, if you want to flip to Joseph Smith history, he says that the ministers of religion in his day were doing two things He's going to use P words that I think are so significant. The first P word is in verse 6. They were promoting this extraordinary scene of religious feeling. 
They were promoting it. And sometimes even in our sacrament meetings, we feel like we have to promote the gospel. We have to, you know, make people cry and, and weep. And we have to tell all these miraculous stories and we promote the gospel. We get overzealous. We get overzealous. The other P word is in verse 9, and that is we use all our powers of both reason and sophistry to prove. We try and prove the truth. Now notice what Joseph Smith says he's going to do in verse 2. He doesn't promote. He doesn't prove. He simply does what? You find that last P word in verse 2? I shall present. I'm just talking. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And that's what I love about Paul. What Paul's trying to say to the Thessalonians is, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to promote the gospel and you don't need to prove it. You just need to present truth and let the Holy Ghost whisper to the souls who are those who are listening and confirm those choice, those truths. And that's how it's taught. It's taught by example. It's taught by love. It's taught gently with kindness and letting the Holy Ghost prove. So going back to chapter 1, verse 5, Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power, in Holy Ghost, in much assurance, with our own examples being presented before you. That just I think that's a great message that got gets lost in the second coming stuff yeah. that we find in Thessalonians. I like that. So it's a it's a way to look at the text as how can we live and I think that's really wise to go through first uh, Thessalonians chapters one and two and just look at how affectionate he is, how he talks about the the message. And I think that's a great way to, to end it. I, I like you know, I've taught this different ways, Bryce. One way I've taught it is I say, hey, what questions do you guys have about the second coming? And we just, we don't know where it's going to go as teachers. I think it's just good to be prepared and walk in there and talk about it. Very few times is anyone really concerned about authorship. But I still think that, you know, for those of you listening to the podcast, you need to be aware that these issues exist. I certainly don't know. I wasn't there when Second Thessalonians was written. But I do know this. The apostasy happened. I mean, we see it. Like, you don't even have to be religiously educated to look around and see something happened. The message of Jesus, by the time Joseph Smith comes around, something happened. And all the scholarship I've read on all the sides of this debate all say that we've lost truth. And so uh, I guess I'll just end with my witness that as I read the Book of Mormon, I feel uh, by the Spirit, I feel this, this truth, this re restoration of things that were lost. And whether the Savior comes in my day or not, I like that advice. Live as if he is. And I just want to end with that. Um, and yeah. I wanted to end with my witness. I, I wanted to save one verse for the very end because as Mike and I make these podcasts, as we try to teach truth with our lives and our words, this verse means a lot to me. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And I leave all of you listening with these words. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we are willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also of our own souls.
because ye were dear unto us. I leave you my witness that this gospel is the gospel of my own soul and that I know that it's true. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening.